0: With Carrie Jones,
1: hi, guys, and welcome to this week's podcast. This week's episode i am joined once more by a guest who has been on my podcast on two past occasions the episodes have been very popular so i was really pleased to have him back once more in the past we've spoken about his fishing including the ferox he had at loch tree in scotland plus his work as a tv presenter talking about his experience in the south seas and living in a jungle while filming his documentaries. He is also a successful author, and in this episode, we chat about his latest book, The Way of the Hermit, about Ken Smith, a hermit living in the remote highlands of Scotland. And in his words, as anglers, I think there is a little hermit, sits within, inside most of us. Welcome to my chat with Will Millard. Well, it's good to have you back, Will. It's been almost a 12 months.
0: I can't believe that. Now you just said when I turned up at your doorstep, I was like, I, I cannot believe it's been 12 months since I was last sat down here. Thanks yeah. for having me
1: back. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad you came up. So how has your season been?
0: I think mixed is the word. Like, work's been quite tricky this year. It's been tricky for a lot of people in the kind of like freelance creative industries. A lot of ups and downs. Um, it's just been quite hard to get out onto the bank. Um, I had quite a good winter. Do you know what? I actually had a really good winter. had a couple of really big taff grayling. That was beautiful. Oh, you did some grayling? I did, yeah. Yeah, just trotting the maggots, you know, um, down in the usual spots. Um, There seemed to be a bigger, better stamp of fish around this winter and just beautifully marked. No one else out there going for them. You know, you get the place to yourself. That was amazing. And then, obviously, all the winter piking that I do. I mean, I'm, I'm a piking obsessive. It must be something in my DNA from growing up in the fens, like...
1: I bet. Yeah, so so we, we had a couple of good,
0: really good sessions up there uh, on some of the Brecon Beacons reservoirs. One of the most memorable days was sort of in the January. Actually, all my family came up, and uh, I just got got this lovely photograph of um, you know me with like a really nice double figure fish, and all my family around me and my best mates and everything, and we're all just there in the lake, and it's and that was just really nice moments. January. Like that
1: really.
0: Yeah, yeah, in January. And then, yeah, we went to France, um, done a bit of wild carp fishing in a few of the streams around there, the kind of offshoots of the Loire. That was cool, you know, wine, carp fishing, you know, wild, wild rivers. Um,
1: what are you fishing for the carp then? Do you, like, ledger or do you, keep, do you keep it simple or do you got these bait alarms and things?
0: No, total sight fishing, stalking. Uh, it was beautiful. There was one well, the of uh, the most memorable catch I found this... Um, wild-looking feeder stream that was split in the campsite that we were in. And there was, like, this, like, five-foot-high fence either side of the bank to stop the kids from obviously going in the water, you know, a bit of a hazard. So I got a couple of camping chairs and managed to vault this fence. And um, there was this small pod of carp, like, there was only about three or four of them, and they were a nice size, real wild-looking, dark commons. And they kind of come in and out of the weed. And, I, and I, over several days, I got them feeding on a little bit of bait. And eventually it got them close enough and yeah, it was literally uh what did I have on the end? Oh, it was three grains of sweet corn. Three ga- great grains of sweet corn, completely free lined. And uh yeah, this dark shape just came out, went down on it, sucked it up. Didn't even realise it was hooked. Um you know, it's one of those where you kinda like gently flick the yeah flick the rod tip to set the hook and it still just sat there and I thought I don't, I don't even think that's in, <laughs> and then it just bolted in, you know, absolute chaos. Then, but but yeah, just that was just an amazing moment.
1: Probably wasn't heavily fished, was it? for the nose?
0: Oh no, no one fished it at all. Oh. Funnily enough, they had a um, they had like a fishing lake on site in that in that campsite. It was the worst fishing lake I've ever seen. It was full of anglers every single evening, but no one fished the river. It was really weird, and that was by far and away the best, the best fishing in the yeah. area. Uh, but nobody. Nobody was interested.
1: You were saying you fished uh, for the grayling in the winter on the taff with a maggot. Did you try the fly? Do
0: you know what? I fished on the fly a little bit later on, you know, the start of the trout season. I managed to get out and that was nice. I fished at the, um, I fished the edu, um, you know, the wild, it's a wild wild trout stream that flows into the, um, into the River Wye, just below Bilf Wells. Right, yeah, and, yeah. And, and that's, that, ah, oh, it's great. I mean, it's good because I can kind of hide away from, other, other, other fly anglers, so they can't see how terrible my casting is. But you know, they're sort of very small brown trout. But that I did do that, just dry fly fishing.
1: Um, I tell you what, we'll have to do is when you mention that stretch of the way. Then there's a a stretch from it's the upper way from between Ryder and Belth. Do you know why? I can't remember the name of the stretch now. When there's a there's a bridge, there's a swing bridge goes over. I was there actually with two guys a couple of weeks ago, Lewis Henry. And Terry Bromwell,
0: oh Terry, Never. yeah,
1: and uh, I went along just to take pictures. I did for the journal, but and they were catching fish left, right, and centre. And then I, but I did have a few casts. Then we swapped rods and uh, swapped the camera with Terry. And um, it's something I'm going to do now in the next couple of weeks before it goes too cold. Because I, I got to be honest, my motivation goes in the cold. But it'd be nice for us to go. I'll get Terry to come along. And we'll have a, a few hours on the way because he's probably the best river angler I've ever, ever met, hands down.
0: Oh, I'd love that.
1: That'd be great. It That'd would, be really, yeah. really good. Yeah, we'll have to sort that. Well, after both our podcasts, because it's the third time we've done a, a recording together, I thought, we I've got to get you back. A couple of reasons. One, because the stories you said have been really, really popular. And at the time, you were actually finishing off i think you planned you were writing a book the way of the hermit and you were on the way to wrapping it up so what i did the last couple of weeks then well it was a june or july you came out and uh, i bought the book because the last one the main thing which made me buy it was the story of the birch sap wine and i thought there's anything else like that in the book i have got to buy it and I got to say I haven't read it all and you've just looked at, at where I've marked the page now I'm probably about over a third of the way through it's brilliant what sort of response has it had
0: oh thank you so much mate that means a lot um do you know what it's it's had a great response I'm so proud of it and I'm so pleased for Ken as well the, the hermit yeah it's been good we've had really good reviews uh a few of the big sort of uh dailies have picked up on it as well um so that's been really great, but I mean more than anything, just members of the public picking it up and being really moved by it and um and getting in touch to say how much they love it and and that that means the world and obviously and trying trying to like put together what people are saying so I can send a letter to Ken so that he actually finds out as well because it's a little bit tricky because he is legitimately completely off grid. Um, but yeah, it's been great. It's been a really good response so far. So fingers crossed, it it keeps kind of building ahead of steam, really, and hopefully through word of mouth, we can get it to as many people as possible.
1: Does he realise how well it's doing? No, <laughs> <laughs> he, he's not going to sort of sell up and uh, go to the city then.
0: No, no I mean I, he's got no idea. I mean he um he he goes out even less now. He's um his health's not great, but I mean he's also quite happy spending his time you know, in the cabin and in the local area. Um, The train station that's most local to him that he does occasionally walk up to, they're selling copies. So he has been up and done a little bit of a signing. And a really good mate of mine, uh, David Caldria, I should give a shout out to him. He's probably one of the best natural history painters in the UK at the moment. Lives out in West Wales. He very kindly painted the most extraordinary portrait of Ken and they've hung that in the... um,
1: I saw that. Yeah. Oh
0: my goodness. Honestly, his the the eyes in it just volley around the room. It's so stunning. Um so Ken's been up well I carried the painting down to show Ken and then uh and then it's been hung at the train station and um yeah oh, so he's it? been up yeah so he's been up and sold and he's he has sold some copies there which is great but he's got no idea obviously about the wider uptake of it and the fact it's been in all the major newspapers and stuff.
1: Does he actually fish now? He
0: doesn't unfortunately, his eyes aren't great, he, he struggles to just thread the eyes of the rod basically, um, his legs aren't great and I found out as well that he can't swim which I couldn't believe given the places he's gone and the places that he's fished yeah. as well as the rivers and lakes he's fallen into, to not be able to swim is, is just mad but Ken, you know, he turned around to me and he said, well, that's why I'm alive because people that learn how to swim, they start taking more risks but Makes if, you sense, ne- yeah. if you never learn to swim you're not going to do anything stupid around water or you yeah. take extra special care but um yeah a bit mad but uh, no i mean goodness me his angling ability is is extraordinary and and he fished you know i mean he, he, we we spoke before about his lock traig record ferox uh, that he caught um but yeah outside of the lock i mean his time in the wildernesses of canada and alaska during the kind of late 70s and early 80s were amazing you know he was yeah. a survivalist living off the land and he fed himself catching fish yeah. you know giant runs of salmon uh he, he 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 was out there for one canadian winter when it dropped down to like minus 20 minus 25 the river terry was freezing he was catching berber out of an ice hole Wow. using the heads of grayling, arctic grayling that he caught, to then catch these berber and then eat them. and um, Yeah, really, really skilled angler.
1: No, the, the ferox, that, that's what caught my attention when he, he, he had this uh, lovely fish. You actually then, when you were going up to stay with him, doing the research of the book, you went up one day, which on your last podcast you mentioned, you caught a big, a really nice ferox as well, didn't you? And didn't you say as well, earlier on when we were chatting, in the same spot as he had his.
0: Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I, I got back, got back to the cabin, and obviously we were both, you know, over the moon with this fish that I'd just caught. And we figured out through talking, um talking about it, and exactly where I'd gone down. He said that is the exact same inlet that I'd had the the uh, the Lock-Trieg record from, which was like thirty years previously. Wow, the exact same spot, and it was pretty much the same water level as well the day that I caught it. You know the, the so we're talking about a you know a seven mile long mm. lock here that extends mm. out like a witch's fingertip, full of all of these different inlets and bays and waterfalls. Could have fished anywhere. I happened to be there, and
1: it's the same. The yeah, sa- the same. It's really same similar area. on a river, isn't it? Where you know there's a certain lay where there'll be a good fish, and for some reason, if that fish leaves, whether it's caught or died, another one would take a space. And I've learnt, like, like with the Corrib with Ferox even though it's in a big expanse of water, there are areas where, like I had my two biggest fish, the 19 and a half and the 25, probably within about 40, 50 yards of each other. It was like a year apart. There's obviously something there, you know, in the open water. And obviously they're there for a reason. There's no feed there. So for you to have caught it without knowing it was the same spot. That's mad. And when you fished it, you said you wasn't sure there was any big fish in there anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean, i had been told by Ken that, that they hadn't sort of seen a trout over four or five pound in weight in years. Um, he said there's this bug, and he had a few photographs that he showed me, and the, the innards of these fish, they look like scrambled eggs. I'd be fascinated if any of the listeners out there have any idea what it what it is. Ken speculates that a bug had got into the water shrimp that were living in the lock. And uh, obviously the trout that had eaten those shrimp had then inherited this bug. And um, yeah, it just, it just turned their innards almost inside out. And, and they just wouldn't survive beyond a few pounds in weight. So to to suddenly catch this fish and it to have been in the same pool as where Ken caught his and for it to have been the biggest... Ferox, as far as I know, as any of us know, since he caught one 30 years previously, well, I don't know, mate. The world works in mysterious ways, doesn't it? There was a lot of serendipity to that, I think.
1: Another thing I noticed when I picked up the book, I thought it was just going to be straight in about his life up in Scotland. But he also goes, you know, he mentions his, you know, his youth from Derbyshire. And then he's almost beaten to death at one stage and he was given the whole background to himself and was a British Columbia. He spent a lot of time on the Yukon. I suppose that's why then when he came back he had to go to somewhere like that. That's the closest we've got to anything wilderness.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, his experiences over there were a baptism of fire for somebody that hadn't got any experience of that at the time. You know, Ken went to the wildest, grandest wilderness that he could think of you know, and back in the day, you know, there was no internet. You couldn't no. pick up handbooks, there wasn't bear grills on the television. You know, he just went out there. You know, the first trip he went out for six months with one of his best mates. I don't know how they didn't die. They had they had to face down grizzly bears, mountain yeah. lions, um, they got threatened by a mounty at one point. Um he, moose, his stories with the moose, absolutely enormous um you, you you can't get your head around it i mean you think like you know the 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 red deer in in scotland look big but these moose are on another yeah. level but he he did survive and he became a very very capable wilderness man but you mentioned you know his early life and and one of the things that a lot of people always ask about is you know what why do people like ken these hermits these off-gridders you know people living on their own in these exceptionally remote environments what is it that drives them to do it and and quite often it is trauma and in ken's case he was savagely beaten up after a night out um in derbyshire in, a, in the town of ripley and he came round from a coma and he just decided there and then that uh, he would never ever allow someone else to dictate to him the terms of his own life and that and that changed him profoundly. Um, and and you do you do when you do encounter people out in the wilderness? Sometimes there is a little bit of a trauma that becomes a sliding doors moment where they really feel like they just want to have complete control over their life. And 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 even if it means they have to suffer and be hungry and be wet and be cold and not have a permanent roof over their head, they're going to do it because it gives them back their freedom, their sense of control.
1: I think more and more recently, more people are getting those thoughts because I watch YouTube a lot. And these sort of videos where people just do that, they, you know, they do videos of themselves doing it, whereas he just did it himself. There's no record of it then, I suppose. And the reason they're doing it, they're just fed up of being controlled in the system, the bills. It's so easy to, for people to think, oh, I have had enough." I'm just going. I want to be a hermit, you know. And I can relate to it.
0: I think especially as anglers, I think there's a little hermit that sits within inside most of us. I think that, we we like solitude, you know, we choose to be reclusive from time to time, we, I mean this is almost feels cliched now but there's certainly times when, when life gets too much, the first thing we think about going and doing is picking up our rod and heading off up some river somewhere where we can experience that little bit of solitude, even if it's just for a few hours. People like Ken, decide to do that full term and I think you're absolutely right Kerry I think that it is growing and growing and growing and people are getting frustrated with the system with the trappings of modernity you know people are seeing that we are destroying our environment in the way that we live and it's not making them happy certainly not making them healthy and people are starting to think do you know what those people that I've always been told are weirdos you know the reclusive people, the solitude, the lone wolves. You know, maybe they're not so odd. And when you meet someone like Ken, you realise they're really not. Ken's a very oh. normal person, actually. He's yeah. he's actually quite social, and he lives in a really comfortable way. His cabin I was is surprised, beautiful.
1: Because in the book, it shows these photographs, and when you think of a hermit, me anyway, I think, or someone in a you know little cabin or a shed and they haven't got any running water or anything. You know, no comfort then, what we would call comfort. But look at those pictures. He's done a really comfortable... I'd go on holidays there. Oh, definitely. <laughs> you know?
0: Absolutely.
1: And another thing I noticed, it's a long cabin, isn't it? Which he's probably made, I guess. It blows my mind that he was
0: able to do it on his own. You know, you, you look at the size of these logs, and he's been able to shift them as one man uh, and to build the structure of his cabin. But yeah, they use this uh, saddle notch technique. Very, very simple. Effectively, you have, like, a cup shape cut into the corner of, uh, of of one of the logs, and that cup shape receives the log above, and then you cut another cup into that, and so on and so forth. And You just stack them up. Yeah. Then you put your roofing material on, cut out your windows and doors, and, and you're in. It's
1: like some moss or something in between or yeah. something. Isn't you'd it? You'd yeah, you'd
0: stuff it up with smagnum sp- moss. And then uh, and then you're away. And yeah, he has no running water, which superficially sounds terrible. But in Scotland, where is there not running water? He's got this beautiful burn out the back of his house. Uh, there's a little pool down there. He just pipes off a little bit. So he's got a little bit of a tap. Um, he's got this bath. Uh, and underneath the bath, he's built like a log burning stove. So he puts logs underneath the bath, fills it up with water from the burn. Heats up the bath. He's got his own hot tub with a view of the lot that he sits wow. in. The only problem he had was that he realised that he was using a um, a, uh, a rubber plug that melted the first time he tried <laughs> to do it. <laughs> so he said, "I just had to change the plug," and, and there we go. I'm away. He's got no electricity, but he has a fire, a ready supply of wood. Uh, he uses candles in his in his cabin. He has lots of candles, and then he's got mirrors behind them which reflect the light. Exactly reflects the light around around the cabin. And he's built guest cabins as well, so when his friends come, you know, like me, when I was going and writing the book with him, I'd go and stay in the guest cabin. My wife's been, Kerry. She came as well. She doesn't mind, does he? Uh, she did mind because unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, one of his friends was staying, so he ended up having to sleep in the store cupboard, and there was twenty dead mice, and some of them were, some of them were skeletons, some of them were mummified, some of them were liquefied, just on the floor. Um, so she wasn't impressed with that, and she was, she was. I could tell she was a little bit like. Oh, you know, Wills brought me into his world and you know, he's gone and done all of these backwards things and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to kind of be the awkward one and I remember very clearly like looking her in the eye and saying, "Where's say, the B&B she's asking. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I looked looked in the eye and I was like, "Listen, love, don't think that I don't think that this is not rank for one second as I'm shoveling all these mice into the corner of the room so we can sleep on the floor." But, yeah, apart from stuff like that, no, I mean, it's it's really comfortable. His cabin itself is, is absolutely lovely. And many, many a good night was spent in there writing this book with him. And drinking. And drinking. Yeah, I had to knock that on the head, to be honest.
1: You didn't know what you were drinking.
0: But it's just that wine.
1: Yeah. Have you been up since the book has come out?
0: Yeah, I have. Um, the Sunday Times wanted to send their columnist, Robert Crampton, to Go Hermit and spend a night with Ken so I took them up there and uh, and we stayed that was in spring um Ken had had a hard winter actually he had had a hard winter and his wood supplies were low and his food was supplies were low and he hadn't really got the garden in the shape that it needed to be we sort of rolled up the sleeves and helped him out there but the truth of the matter is, is, is Ken is getting old. He's, he's 75, but he's an old 75. His body has taken a battering, obviously, given the way that he lives. And one of the really great things about the book is that hopefully, you know, the little bit of an income that he's going to get from it, um, it's going to make his life a little bit more comfortable.
1: Yeah, he can have Tesco home deliveries. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny when does your Tesco will no. come outside. Is there a road it. that goes to it?
0: Uh, no there isn't I mean but so one of the things so he's he's on an I mean obviously you know most of Scotland is part of various Scottish estates so he is on a Scottish estate um, he sought permission to build the cabin which I wrote about in the book um, but they really love him up there and they do look after him and they put there is a bit of a um, it's sort of like a a stone track you know they can get their four by fours when they're working on the working on the estate and then you get to his wood there's not a you know, not a pathway through there, but they can get close enough. So basically now, you know, they're they're able to um, send a woodsman down to cut his wood for him, which is great. And they also take him food as well from time to time. So, you know, fingers crossed uh, he's going to kind of be able to, for as long as he wants to, stay where he he loves.
1: Yeah, that to me, I would love the idea of going and do a a photographic project on always living, you know, Yeah, that would be like right up my street. There's a couple of places I've got in my head already for Ireland, and hopefully if all things come together, because there's lots of people, some characters you meet when you go to these places. But in the fishing season, when I go there, it's normally anything between April or September. Even though I want to do this, meet these different people and photograph them and chat and do podcasts, in the fishing season, really speaking, I want to go fishing. So now the fishing season's finishing now in the next couple of days, actually, in Ireland. I'm going to go in October, November and just do like a a photographic journey, you know, and meet people like this. I love that, just talking to them, you know. Some of these stories they come out with, you know, it's like gold. Oh,
0: yeah, extraordinary.
1: One of the things as well I picked up on, because I light a lot of fires when I'm fishing to cook some food. One of the tips he said in there as well, is for, if you want a less intense heat, if a fire's going really fast, pull the logs apart so you get a gap in the centre. He didn't even think of that.
0: No, nor did I. So he picked this up from the Indigenous Peoples in um in the Yukon, I think it was, and uh, it was when he was... um, uh, Ken spent a period where he just walked off into the wilderness with effectively nothing. He had like a billhook, a, a pot... Um, a small bag of sugar, a little bit of flour for making bannocks, a tarpaulin, um, and and a fishing rod, and that was basically it. And and but he did encounter Indigenous peoples when he was walking through their land, and um, they taught him this method of of fire building, a star fire they called it, and you arrange the logs in a star formation. And then you control the burn by moving the logs in and out for a more intense or less intense heat. And obviously as well, it meant that you wasted less wood. You know, as soon as your water or food or your fish that you'd stuck on a spit was cooked, you'd pull the logs apart and you wouldn't use that fuel up. As opposed to doing what we do, which is pile the wood on top. Soon as your food's cooked, you, you've taken it off, but the fire still keeps roaring, and you've burned through all of that wood, don't you? Yeah, you know. So it was, it was interesting, and he learned a lot of lessons from from the people of, of that land, and uh, it undoubtedly helped him out. It made him the man he became.
1: Do you feel a bit lost now? You spent a lot of time putting this book together. When it's out there, it's. I bet you feel a great feeling, and then you've got to start selling it. Obviously, and that's another job again. Do you feel that? Have we written. I've I've got some ideas now to write another book. Would you like to take time out now? I mean, I can't
0: afford to take time out, and this is this is where it is difficult. And I do I, I do feel a bit lost at times. You know, I always feel a bit lost after my projects. They they take so much out of me, physically and emotionally, because I I really care about the people that I work with and 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 help to tell their stories. You know. It, it, it takes a little part of you you know whether it's working with the Bajau in Indonesia you know I always think about that family that I stayed with 10 years ago now my first Hunters of the South Seas project or you know the brothers that I stayed with when I was in the Korowai in in Papua you know living in the tree houses out in the swamps with them in New Guinea Um, and now through to Ken you know the the Hermit of Trade writing this book The Way of the Hermit and and you you get to the end Kerry and you're just like gotta start again now like find someone else and 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 tell their story and I know you know I don't want people to feel sorry for me because it's like John I'm not I'm not I'm not stacking beans and working in the factories anymore like I used to but equally it is hard to keep finding remarkable people you know they are exceptional human beings and they don't come across every every you know every day you don't come across them every day so it does it does make it difficult to, to find them. And then when you do find them, you, you start to think, oh, I mean, you never know where you're going to find your next story. Sometimes it is people that you meet in the pub and chats, but sometimes it's more conventional. And this time I was, um, it was a Glasgow Film Festival and this independent film had been entered called The Hermit of traig which I encourage everybody to watch. It's absolutely incredible. Made by a local Scottish filmmaker called Lizzie McKenzie, who actually taught herself how to film so she could film Ken's life. And in it, you know, you see this remarkable character, but I also noticed that he was keeping a diary and he actually has written a diary every day since the age of five. Has he? Uh, Yes. So I was using not only his spoken word when I'd go up and interview him, I had and have at my house now all of his diaries from the age of five to 75. Handwritten? Handwritten, which is a hell of a responsibility um, to have them all. And they're, pil- they're piled high. I mean, there's probably two to three million words, I would say, in them. And I've read it all. Um,
1: and he still continue to write?
0: Yeah, he does. He does. I mean, he struggles. His eyesight's not great, as as I said before. So he does struggle. He does struggle to write.
1: Um, I bet <laughs> that's... You just pick at random a certain date and just read it. And I bet it's, like, incredible to think oh, what's yeah. going through his mind.
0: Absolutely. And it's... and I mean, you read... I mean, it's in the book, but like, you know, there's a time where he's run out of a bothy because of this poltergeist, this ghost. And you read about, you read it in his diary and whether you believe in ghosts or not, that sense of fear, that Mm. visceral, visceral fright comes through in his words. There's just this like shaky handwriting and it says, have you ever felt fear question mark and then he literally ran for 18 miles through a Scottish winter in a snowdrift through the middle of the night you know and then there's super storms that he faces down where all the trees in the forest are crashing around the cabin and he flees out and he runs up into the train line um, which is above his house and he goes and runs into this train tunnel and the the wind is so strong that it's almost like throwing him off his feet and and, and then you read about these things whilst the events are unfolding around him and it's almost more powerful than film. That's in the book, then.
1: I, I got yeah. I can't wait to finish yeah, you this. You need now. to
0: hurry up, mate. You're about, I'm looking at this now, guys. It's only about a third of the
1: way through. <laughs> so now this is out there. Have you got anything else in your head? No, your next project?
0: The next one that's going to be coming out is a book called My First Day Fishing. And basically, I think I've noticed you know like many of us I mean I can't even believe I'm even saying older anglers now because I'm only 40 but you realize that even growing up in the 80s that things were very different back then and a lot of us were taught by a parent or a grandparent how to fish whereas a lot of kids today don't have that opportunity so what I wanted to do is, is write this children's book going back to how it was to be taught by my granddad to fish and to almost kind of take a young person by the hand and talk them through the very basics of our sport. So that's, that's going to be coming out with magic cap, uh, hopefully in spring of, um, of next year. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's how to fish, but then also it's watercraft. It teaches them about fish themselves Is as animals. It's written. Also, yeah. You've done it. Completed. I finished it. Yeah. So it's just kind of tidying it up now. I've had to work with an illustrator and, <laughs> You always work with people that don't fish, so you kind of like, now you put the reel on back to front there, or um, you know, you've you've labelled a carp as a barbel, and you know, grayling have got red tinge fins, all of this kind of stuff, you know, lovely, lovely things to kind of uh to to work on. But yeah, I'm really excited to see that go out into the wild.
1: When you put these books together, like this one, for instance, the way of the hermit, have you got an actual deadline which you have to reach? Or do you come to a stage where you think no, that's not quite right, and then I want to change it, and you keep going. And what's it like when you think then, right, I'm not going to keep changing it now, this is it?
0: It's really hard. There's an old line in in, uh, in, in writing that your book is never finished, you just get to the day it has to be handed in. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm afraid that's true. You know, it's a, a book like The Way of the Hermit, you know, with the archive of Ken's life plus Ken himself plus the responsibility you you could go on forever but at some point you have to just be like no that's good enough It's that's got to go in now
1: I guess with all the diaries that, which he's written there's room for another book oh I mean he says that <laughs> yeah they, you
0: could easily write 10 books on the story of, wow. of Ken's life and some of the stuff that hasn't made the cut I mean you're just like I, I can't believe I'm I can't believe I'm covering that in a line
1: you know yeah, yeah. Like, so I guess now that the book is out there and you've more or less said there's another one on the way which is written does this leave any more time now for you to go fishing have we got anything planned fish now this year
0: do you know what I mean I'm looking forward to coming into the winter now um the last couple of projects that I've got going on touch wood were going very badly but are now going very well so i'm hoping that i might actually start to get back out there again so we've got the winter pike season coming now which i absolutely love so i'll definitely be heading out onto the reservoirs i really really want to catch a pike on the fly this year if i can um need to do a little bit of investment of the gear unfortunately i haven't got anything you know fly fishing for pike now is uh is getting bigger oh, cool. and bigger and yeah, bigger it is, isn't it? and it looks so cool like the takes that you see them um you know when the when the when the pike hits that fly it just looks ferocious so I'd, I'd love to give that a go um i'll definitely be going back onto the grayling at some point as well um yeah and then i guess just uh just resetting for the spring really
1: what i plan to do now in the next couple of weeks hopefully is do this grailing fishing or maybe you can get in touch with Teddy for us to go the three of us to go but I want to get a bass in with a bass this year I am a fish to them
0: yeah no I've not had a bass this year either I mean I, I moved to the coast and you know I've done a handful of sessions um, just you know straight into the seven estuary basically with big baits and things but it's ridiculous that I haven't been out on the I was absolutely sure that I was going to be bass fit. and this year it seems to have been really really good actually for bass there's been some big ones yeah, coming out have been.
1: Yeah. On the spinners and or whatever, plastic, soft yeah, plastics, soft like plastics, plastics. Like, yeah. Some people
0: have had them on the flies as well around. I mean, I, you can't say specific locations, otherwise you, uh, yeah. you won't make it home. <laughs> have, you, have your <laughs> tyres slashed? But yeah, I mean, some of the some of the places around, uh, you know, where we live here in South Wales, has been absolutely fitching his head off. I
1: won't do listen to your tyres. You can tell me. <laughs> I, won't, I won't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, many thanks for coming up and uh, to get. I'll have to get you to sign this book for me. Actually what's the best way for listeners to get hold of a copy of your book
0: well you can you can go on to amazon of course the way of the hermit um you can pick it up there you can pick it up at any bookshop we'll order it in for you it's in waterstones or if you would like a signed copy you can get in touch with me through my social media i'm on all the usual places twitter facebook instagram and i'm sure i'll be able to sort you out so anywhere basically
1: well many thanks will Hopefully, we'll get out in the next couple of weeks and try to catch some fish.
0: Sounds perfect.
1: If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to listen to more, please consider becoming a Patreon. We will get weekly podcasts and access to over 140 episodes, behind-the-scenes photography to go with each episode, plus other exclusive content and prizes. To become a Patreon, visit patreon.com forward slash casting with Kerry Jones or you can find the link on my website castingwithkerryjones.com That's all for now and tight lines and may they always be up in the wave.